Ephesians chapter 6, as JT said, we'll be finishing, we're kind of wrapping up this section in Ephesians where we have been talking about this whole idea of the household code. I say it that way because that trips my tongue out every time I say it. And this week I've been practicing and it's not gotten any better, so I'm just going to say it slowly, okay? This idea of this household code um, that uh, was prevalent in the culture. Many people uh, ascribed to such a code, see, in the future. Um, And uh, Paul is speaking into it within the life of the church. And remember something that Gerald said early on, that all of the imperatives of Scripture are built upon the indicatives of Scripture. That means that any commands that we are given in the Scripture is always built upon the eternal truths of the gospel for us. And so Paul has you know, spent the first half of this letter to uh, this church in Ephesus unpacking these gospel truths for us, the church, for them originally, but for us as well. And now he's sort of helping them then understand how these things play out in their lives and in the specific situations um, that they are in uh, personally. And through this section, he's just working through uh, this whole idea of these relationships within the home. And we've looked and we've seen how husbands are to relate to wives and wives to husband and husbands and children to parents and fathers to children. And now we come to this section in chapter six, beginning in verse five, uh, where he addresses a different group of people within the home and within the church. And let's read it together, beginning in verse five. Paul writes this. He says, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Will you join me in praying? So, Father, we, as always, we need the help of your spirit this morning. Uh, We thank you that every time we open your word, we encounter you. Every time we open your word, we hear you speak to us. So, Father, our prayer this morning is not that you would speak to us, but indeed the thankful hearts that we bring to you because you will speak to us. You just spoke to us through your word. So we thank you for that, Lord. Would you help us in this task of preaching? This morning, Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be clear in the way that this message is presented, God, and faithful to what you intend for us to hear this morning through your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that you have given us to help us with this task of rightly interpreting your word and then rightly applying your word. And Father, we need your help with that this morning. Uh, So God, we thank you in advance for your spirit's work in that way. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts through your word today. And Father, I pray that you would help us to respond to you um, as we look to you as our Lord and Master to see how we might honor you in response to what you have for us today. Thank you, God, for the privilege and uh, just great uh, joy that it is that we can come together as this local body. God, thank you for the gift that this local body is to us and for the gift that it is to come together and worship you and magnify you and make much of you today. And I pray that that's what we would be found to do all for the name of Christ. We pray. Amen. 
So when we get to this portion of this household code, um, we squirm a bit, don't we? This is one of those passages that causes us to be uneasy. Um, and we are uneasy because the language that's there. Um, anytime we are dealing with uh, the, the idea of slavery and addressing bond servants and masters, and especially when we see that in Scripture, it causes us to be uneasy. And that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Um, but we need to make sure that we avoid certain dangers when we come to passages like this. Okay? So if you'll indulge me, I want us to begin with some Bible study 101 for a little while. Can we do that? Because I think that this is a good opportunity for us to proceed with caution and back up and ask the question one more time. What is it that we are seeking to do to faithfully study God's word? And I think this is a good opportunity for us to walk back through this. Here are some dangers that we face whenever we approach any scripture in the New Testament or the or the the, the entirety of God's word. Um, and uh, these are dangers that we are prone to do from the get go. Look, uh, there are three of them I want to give us. Number one, we try to understand the cultural elements of a passage from our own 21st century understanding of those elements. That is a very clear danger for us that we bring our own uh, preconceptions into the text. Now, what do we know about the text? It was written in antiquity to us. It was written thousands of years ago. And all of those years span the difference anytime we open God's word from the original culture of the text to our culture today. And we always carry the dangers, brothers and sisters, of carrying our own understanding of terminology, of cultured terms into the scriptures. And we need to guard against that. The second danger we face is that we we try to immediately identify cultural parallels to the cultural setting of the passage. We read the passage and we begin to ask, okay, where does this fit in our culture today? And we do not do the work of understanding the original culture or the original message. And we just try to begin to apply it to our lives and our culture today. The third danger we have is that we immediately try to identify principles to apply and follow from the passage. And those last two are kind of connected We try to find exactly where it speaks to us today and then try to pull the principles out that we need to follow. These are all dangers for us. They are dangers for us every time we open God's word. Okay, but there is one root to all of these dangers. And yes, it is a big word, brothers and sisters. I am not using big words this morning in an attempt to impress you. Okay, I'm using some bigger words this morning because I believe that they are words that every believer should be acquainted with, well acquainted with, okay? The danger or the root of these dangers is something that we call eisegesis. You can see it there in your notes. E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. The root is eisegesis, okay? I'm going to get to defining that in just a moment, but first let's be reminded about the goals of good Bible study. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I'm going to post this stuff later. So if you're trying to get it all down and don't, that's okay. It'll be there for you later. What is the goal of good Bible study? Well, there's two, I believe. And number one is that we want to discover the original author's intended meaning of the text to his original audience. Okay, that's the first goal of good Bible study. Let me read it again. Discover the original author's intended meaning of the text 
to his original audience. The second goal flows out of that, and it is a second goal. It is to determine the faithful application of the text that is rooted in the intended meaning. Everybody with me? That's the progression. Those are the goals. Discover the original author's intended meaning of the text to his original audience. Number two, determine the faithful application of the text that is rooted in the intended meaning. Now, here is the truth, and this is a truth that we need to understand. Okay, get this. Scripture cannot mean what it was never intended to mean. Scripture cannot mean what it was never intended to mean. And brothers and sisters, the the place of greatest danger for this is when we read the Old Testament. That there are passages in the Old Testament that were written by an original author to an original audience into a specific original purpose that we then read and try to rip out of its context to make it mean something to us today. If we do that, we are not being faithful to the word. So let me restate the principle. This is the truth. Scripture cannot mean what it was never intended to mean. So if we begin studying any passage and we are led first by the question, what does it mean to me? We have already misapplied and misinterpreted the scripture. Okay? We need to dash any language that we would use with God's word that begins with the words to me. Okay? The purpose of Bible study is not to determine what scripture means to me. I am not the authority. You are not the authority. The purpose of good Bible study is to understand what the original meaning was by the original author as given to him by the work of the spirit. Okay? So a scripture cannot mean what it was never intended to mean. Therefore, we have two rules for good Bible study. Number one, the meaning of Scripture never changes. The meaning of Scripture never changes. If we are doing a Bible study with 20 different people, uh, that does not mean that the Scripture is going to have 20 different meanings. Okay? We all are digging for the same meaning. And as best we can, with the tools that God has given us through his word, we are seeking to discover what the word meant from the original author to the original audience. Number two rule, application may change all the time, but it always flows out of the meaning of the text. So here's the truth. We can have 20 people in a Bible study. We will arrive at one meaning because we are listening to the word and what the meaning out of the word is. And then we may find a myriad ways of applying that text because we all are in different seasons of life. We all are in different stations of life. We all have different contexts in our life and are doing different things and have different vocations. So that one meaning of the text may open up into application in different places in our lives. Okay, this is Bible study 101. This is what we are trying to do. And brothers and sisters, we are incredibly blessed to have a pastor who has followed this progression for us for over 30 years. And he's not going to use this language. He's not going to say, now we're going to do this. But he is following this process every week. If you've not listened for it before, begin to listen for it. And see how first he roots the meaning of the passage in the original context. Okay? This process is called exegesis. Now, the danger was eisegesis. The proper study is exegesis. Let me spell that for you. E-X-E-G-E-S. 
E-X-O-S-I-S. It's called exegesis. Now listen, the terms exegesis and eisegesis may only differ by a slight variation in the prefixes, but the difference in meaning is enormous in the way that we seek to understand and respond to the scriptures. And really the difference is in those prefixes. When I speak the word exegesis, that first two letters X comes from the Greek preposition that means from out of, from out of. So when I'm talking about exegesis, I'm looking for meaning that comes from out of the word. Eisegesis is the opposite of that. E-I-S, ice, is the Greek preposition that means into. It means that I'm reading meaning into the text. Okay, so here's the truth. It is entirely possible for us in the sinful flesh that we have to arrive at a meaning of the text that resonates with our nature and sounds right, but is a product of us reading our own preconceptions and ideas into the text in order to determine the meaning. Amen? We need to guard against that. Why is this important? Because much popular preaching is a model for eisegesis. And it sounds good. And as a Greek professor that I had at North Greenville would say, that dog will hunt, that passage will preach. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's preaching truth. And we need to understand the difference and how to tell the difference. It also matters for our own study of the scriptures. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Doing exegesis is hard. Doing eisegesis is easy. We have to pick the more difficult path, but the spirit is good in leading us. We have to roll up our sleeves and we have to do the work of Bible study in order to determine the original meaning by the original author to the original audience and then build a bridge of application into our day that stays tied to the original meaning. Okay, so this morning, I want us to model that together. I want us to major on the exegetical portion of working through this passage So let's start by taking the necessary first step together, and that is understanding the cultural context in Paul's day in this city called Ephesus. Now, let's go back to the dangers we highlighted at the first. You remember them? The first one, we tried to understand the cultural elements of a passage from our own 21st century understanding of those elements. What are the terms that immediately jump out at us from this passage? The word slaves and the word masters. We don't like those terms. And brothers and sisters, that's a good thing. Because when we hear those words, it speaks of unimaginable evil. But we need to understand that those terms grab us out of our 21st century understanding of those terms. And what that means is we immediately think in terms of chattel slavery, where people were owned by other individuals by birth. They would be bought and sold to one another and they were placed in service to a master with no compensation whatsoever, and they served for life in that capacity. That is not the type of slavery that Paul is speaking into in Ephesus, but that is the slavery that comes to mind for us. The other form of slavery that comes to mind is a slavery that's still very prevalent in our world today, and that's human trafficking. Human trafficking, people are stolen from their lives and then placed in service, most uh, notably in our world, uh, through sex trafficking. That's another form of slavery that is alive and well in our world today. So we understand that these terms are what we would call enculturated. We have a understanding of the terms based on our culture in our day and our perspective. Okay, 
So what we think of is chattel slavery and human trafficking. If we begin to try to understand this passage from that standpoint, we're going to misapply and misunderstand the passage. Okay, let me make a clear statement that I think is important to make. Lean into this and listen to this. Any and every form of human slavery is antithetical to the created purposes of God. Period. Any and every form of slavery, human slavery, is antithetical to the created purposes of God. Therefore, every type of human slavery that has ever existed was birthed out of sin and sin's consequences. Every single one is a tragic distortion of the cultural mandate God has given to mankind. So let's begin from the beginning and say that we are not going to affirm any form of slavery. We are going to repudiate them all for what they are. However, the exegetical question for us is what was the cultural situation in Ephesus that shaped the understanding of these terms then? How must that perception necessarily shape the way that we seek to understand Paul's meaning in what he writes to these two groups here in this particular letter? Now, listen to this. While the systems of slavery that existed in Ephesus at this time weren't necessarily better, don't hear me arguing that. I think sometimes we go so far that we almost try to make it sound like this slavery was somehow better. All slavery is evil. Okay? While it's not better, it was different than our own enculturated view. Okay? So let me share with you some about this form of slavery in Ephesus so that we can begin to set the cultural understanding so we can understand what's going on here. Scholars tell us that there was some estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. That is nearly half of the entire population. Okay, most tell us that the estimate in Ephesus was that one third of the population were slaves in the sense that Paul says here. The social reality was if you were walking down the street or anybody was walking down the street in Ephesus and you were passing other people, you could not clearly delineate who was a slave and who was free. You could not do that. Everybody moved about as if everyone was just in equality, but slaves and masters and those who had no ties either way just moved freely about with one another. They tell us that uh, slaves in this day were the primary workforce in the Roman Empire, and slaves could even uh, include what we would call white-collar positions like doctors. Okay? Now, understand this. We don't need to present an antiseptic view of slavery. Many, many slaves were mistreated, and there was an ownership here that should never be from one human to another. Okay? So there was the issue that if you were a slave, you were prone to uh, face all sorts of evil, and under the law, that evil was okay. However, they do tell us that although no one at this time was speaking out against this system of slavery, you didn't have people who were protesting this, you didn't have people who were prevalent writers of this day who were calling for the overflow of this, or the emancipation of slaves, or abolition, they weren't calling for any of this, but there were plenty of people that were writing and speaking into the ethical treatment of slaves. And when Paul's day comes about, this ethical treatment had improved a whole lot. And it was rare that you found harsh mistreatment of slaves, although it was still uh, it was still a reality. The last thing we need to understand here is why would Paul include this in the household code? Because slaves and masters were a part of the same household. 
slaves lived with their masters, with their families. They would tell us that slaves in this day could purchase their own freedom, and most of the time they did. Most of the time they purchased their own freedom. In fact, a great majority of slaves, when they purchased their freedom, would would attain their own slaves. Also in this day, many slaves who earned their own freedom would take the name of their families and remain with the family. So this very much keeps us within the context of the family as Paul is speaking into it. Okay, so understanding all of that, let me make this statement to try to apply in any way this passage to the forms of slavery familiar to us today will almost always inevitably lead to misinterpretation and therefore misapplication. I'm not going to use this passage today to speak of the evils of slavery in our day. Why? Because that would be a misapplication of this passage. I want to be faithful in the exegesis that we do through this passage that helps us know how to apply it. That moves us to the second danger that we have, and that's to immediately try to identify cultural parallels to the cultural setting of this passage. What do we try to do? We try to say, well, if that's the workforce of the day, then we can apply this to our workplace today and we can replace bond servants with employees and we can replace masters with employers and we can just apply the principles over to that context. Now, we will see in our application that certainly these principles can apply to that context. But listen, we must never choose to ignore the crucial first steps of exegesis and just run with what we perceive to be similar cultural situations because we will inevitably fall into the third danger we highlighted, and that is to immediately try to identify principles to apply and follow from the passage. And listen, in the present case, if we were to simply replace the labels and apply these principles, it would work out okay. It would not lead to false teaching necessarily. However, listen, this is the point. All right. Listen to this. It would, however, cause us to miss some of the most beautiful depths of the gospel, as well as the profound differences the reality of the gospel makes, not only in the lives of individuals, but in the culture itself. Okay, so I know that that was a bit of labor. But with that groundwork laid, let's walk back through the passage. But I want us to be careful to do that first in an intentionally exegetical way. All right. So as we get back to the passage, one of the biggest questions that people lob at this passage all the time is why doesn't Paul speak out against slavery? If you're saying that slavery is wrong, all forms of slavery is wrong, then why is Paul almost sound complicit in this by telling slaves and masters to participate in the system, even if it is in a different way than the rest of the culture? Why doesn't Paul speak out against it? Well, listen, the Bible exposes the broken reality of our world as the gospel is applied in the midst of that brokenness. And we see Paul speak into this slavery reality in this culture to several different churches. And those passages are very similar. Paul is saying some very similar things across different cultures to different churches. But Paul's primary concern here is not to call for revolution over a culture, cultural system. His purpose here is not to give his own opinions about the systems in this culture. Paul's primary concern is to help the people in this church apply the gospel to their lives. That is what Paul is concerned with. And I believe that that's what Paul does very clearly and very simply. 
The balance of this text suggests that there were probably more slaves in this church than masters in this church. Why? Because there's a lot more written to slaves. However, the balance of the passage can be seen also in what Paul is going to say to the masters, which we will see. The context here continues to be the household and continues to build upon the foundation of this idea of submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ that we find in 521. And just as he has with these other relationships in the home, Paul begins with speaking to the one who is in the subordinate place, as he does with all of the other uh, uh, familial relationships that are there. While Paul does not speak out against the system of slavery, listen, what he does, what he does say is absolutely radical, absolutely radical. And what scholars tell us is that eventually, not too long down the road, when slavery is abolished and the emancipation of slaves happen, these things that Paul writes to the first century church are central to the texts used to bring about that emancipation. Okay? We need to understand that. We need to see that. What Paul does here is he beautifully highlights the dignity of these bond servants in at least six ways. Number one, he acknowledges them. In every other household code, there is not a word mentioned to slaves or bondservants. There are things written to masters, but slaves are not even recognized. Paul acknowledges them. He speaks to them. He gives flesh to them. Whereas in other parts of the culture, they may have been invisible. He makes them visible. Before the community of the church. Number two, he reminds them of their gospel identity. He reminds them of their gospel identity, who they are in Christ. And listen, that equals the playing field in the church. That all of these walls have been knocked down within the body of Christ. And this same identity you have in Christ, everyone else in the church shares that same identity. Number three, he reveals to them their true eternal purpose and ascribes significance to their work. He ascribes significance to their work, even as slaves. Number four, he points them to their true, eternal, living hope that is theirs in Christ Jesus being held in heaven for them that is unfading and imperishable. He points them to that hope. Number five, he highlights the reality of their true equality in the way that he addresses them and the masters. We'll see that. And then number six. He compels all believers to recognize and respond to their inherent dignity within the community of faith. Paul legitimizes their place there, but not only their place, but their standing in Christ before the whole community of faith. So understanding that, let's begin to walk through the text now, beginning in verse five. And we see that Paul does ascribe this label bondservants. Doulos in the Greek, it can mean bondservant or slave. And look at the very simple command, bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters. So Paul uh, clearly speaks to the masters that he's talking about here, your earthly masters. Once again, this is a call to submission to earthly authority. In, uh, in Titus, Paul says this in 2.9, he says, bond servants are to be submissive. He uses the word submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Peter, later on, is going to issue a similar call. Now, he uses a slightly different word. He speaks to servants there, but I believe it's the same group of people into the church that he is speaking to. And he goes a bit deeper. 
He even ascribes significance even to the suffering they may be facing. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. This is 18 through 25. He says this. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten when he uh, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now uh, have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls in a beautiful way, just like it does in every part of the New Testament to those who are suffering. We can endure the suffering and we can walk into it knowing that God's presence doesn't leave us. And in fact, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. It ascribes significance to that. But once again, we must remain tied to the exegesis. Nowhere in the New Testament where it offers us hope to endure through suffering does it legitimize the suffering. At no place does it do that. And we also need to be very careful that we don't begin to ascribe the, um, the, the, the attitude that Paul is calling slaves to have here to other situations in our culture of people enduring abuse. Don't do that. Okay, that's a misapplication, a misuse of God's word. We must stay tied to the exegesis. Look, see here. What is Paul saying here? And Paul tells them that they need to obey their earthly masters. Then he gives us the manner in which they are to obey. And there's three manners in which they are to obey here. If you're following along in the text. First, he says that you must obey with fear and trembling, fear and trembling. Now, this is a favorite coupling of terms by Paul who tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He also tells the believers at Corinth that when I came to you, I came in fear and trembling. This is a a favorite coupling of words by Paul. And this is not intended to convey the idea of cringing servility. That's not what this means. But of reverent acknowledgement of authority. It's, It's a sober awareness of authority. And as we will see in just a moment, that's not just a sober awareness of the authority of your master. We'll see that in just a moment. Second, he says that you are to obey with a sincere heart. This idea of a sincere heart should render the idea of an undivided service. It is a service that is without hypocrisy or ulterior motives. It even carries the idea of generosity, that you're not only to do what you are asked, but you are to move from rote obedience to honoring your master. Right. Do your best. Be generous in your work. Okay. even go above and beyond what you are asked to do. Um, Notice the further designations for both manners. He goes on to say that you are to do this with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. This phrase changes everything because what Paul is calling for here is not just a response to their earthly masters. It is ultimately a response to their heavenly master. It's not just a response to those earthly masters. So ultimately, as you obey with fear and trembling and as you obey with a sincere heart, you are doing it unto the Lord. There's a sense of obedience here and keeping that in mind that is joyful. 
that is mindful of hope, that is not in an effort to earn or gain. It is not out of mere obligation, but it is for the pleasure of the Lord. Third, we see a negative manner. Paul says to obey not by way of eye service or people pleasers. This has the idea of doing something with the motivation of winning the favor of your master. Don't just do it so that you will gain the favor of your master. Don't just work hard when they are watching you and then don't work when they are not watching you. There's to be an integrity about the way that you obey and you go about your work. Um, But then we see that there is a contrast that is given. It's not to be done by way of eye service or people pleasers. But look what the text says. Ephesians 6, 6 and 7, they are not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but, and listen to this, I think that this is the central, the central phrase for this entire passage, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. You see, this is what Paul is doing. He is highlighting the ultimate reality based on the ultimate identity. Listen, a key aspect of your new identity in Christ, Paul says to these slaves. And this is true for everyone who is in Christ, not just you. Everyone is that you are a slave to Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a doulos, a slave, a bondservant of your master, Christ. And that leads to the ultimate reality. Everything you do, as is true for everyone who is in Christ, is ultimately for Christ. You do ultimately in service to him as supreme master and Lord. Paul is helping them understand their relation to Christ and how it works out in every role that they have, every responsibility that they have. And Paul goes on to say that you're doing the will of God. Is that possible? Is it possible to do the will of God in a situation so broken as as slavery? Sometimes I think that we believe this lie that the only time we can do God's will is when the conditions are favorable. There's also a question inherent in this, isn't there? Can you trust him? Can you trust the Lord with where you are in life? What a beautiful message to these who are serving as bond servants, that you're doing the will of God, that you're reflecting him, even in this work. Can you trust him in that? Paul goes on to say, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This has the idea of doing it from the heart and soul. Robinson, a commentator, says this. He renders it as the good and ready will, which does not wait to be compelled. So we get this picture, don't we, of these principles that Paul gives. And they're very easy to walk through. They're very easy to understand. This is how Stott, John Stott, summarizes this. He says, the slave's perspective has changed. That's what the gospel does. The slave's perspective has changed. His horizons have broadened. He has been liberated from the slavery of men pleasing into the freedom of serving Christ. His mundane tasks have been absorbed into a higher preoccupation, namely the will of God and the good pleasure of Christ. Do you hear how the gospel just elevates? How the gospel calls up? And it's all only as you fix your eyes on the one who is our heavenly master. 
And so finally, Paul here, he grounds or roots this command for bondservants to obey and the manner in which they are to carry that out in the reality of a future hope. Look at verse eight. Paul says you are to do this knowing that whatever good anyone does, do you notice that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. What does Paul do? He points to the same hope of every believer, the same reality for every believer. Brothers and sisters, we walk into this room this morning from all different walks of life with all different kinds of vocations and different seasons of life. But listen, if we are if we are in Christ this morning, no matter what God has called us to do and no matter what we do is ultimately for him and his glory. And what changes for us in the gospel is that we no longer work here for the pleasure of men and for their response to us. We do everything for Christ's good pleasure, understanding that he is our judge and that we give all of that back as an offering to him. And that was true here for these bond servants. But here is the progression that I've used before. No, be, do. We know that. Do we consider it as true? Do we consider it as settled to the point that it naturally comes out in the way that we yield our lives to Christ? Paul is reminding them of this eternal reality that they needed to internalize as a conviction in the reality of the gospel that was already theirs to the point that they would yield themselves in submission to Christ in the way that they responded to their temporary situation. You see, these bond servants could trust in God and his will. Even in difficult situations. And Paul reminds them that God sees them. And that all of the promises of the gospel hold true for them. And that ultimately they were to view this temporary situation through a new eternal lens. Understanding that any and every situation is an opportunity to serve and glorify Jesus as Lord and Master. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says this about slaves there. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you accumulate enough money to buy your freedom, go ahead and do it, he says. But listen to what he says. For he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. We are all slaves to Christ if we are in Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. We see this difference in the way that Paul writes back to Philemon. He has encountered this uh, slave who has run away. His name is Onesimus. And under Paul's influence, Onesimus has come to Christ, it seems. And he not only fled from Philemon, it, it seems that he also acted against him, probably stole from him in order to have the means to get to Rome. And Paul is writing back to Philemon and he's saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. But I'm sending to him to you no longer as the essence of a slave, but as a brother. Paul highlights this difference that the gospel makes, but he's still sending Onesimus back to the house of Philemon. And saying, this is a brother who is returning to you. So now let's see what Paul has to say to masters. Very simply, masters, do the same to them. What in the world does that mean? Paul, you just said a whole lot of stuff, right? Gave a lot of principles there. You said some things to the bond servants. What do you mean that masters are to do the same to them? Well, I do not think that this is a call to mutual obedience. I do not think that that's what Paul is saying here. 
But once again, he is calling masters and slaves to mutual submission in Christ. That's the context of the whole passage. That's the foundation of the whole passage. I believe that Paul is admonishing them or exhorting them, commanding them to have and maintain the same spirit that he's just highlighted for the bondservant. I think he's compelling them to treat your slaves in the same way, with the same spirit and the same compulsion. I like how one commentator uh, said that this is the application of the golden rule. As you would have them do unto you, you do unto them. And if we walk back through the principles that are laid out for the for the for the bond servants, it would read like this. Masters, treat your bond servants with fear and trembling before the Lord, understanding that you are held accountable to a greater authority. Treat your bond servants with a sincere heart, undivided heart. Treat them in a loyal way, without hypocrisy or ulterior motives. Treat them as you yourself understands that you are a slave of Christ. That these earthly masters also are slaves to their master, Christ. And that should bear out in the way that you treat these bond servants. That you should remember that you are doing the will of God from the heart and that you should have good will and good intentions towards them. This is what Paul is doing to the masters and it is radical. It is reminding them of the inherent dignity of all people that's grounded in the image of God in all people. Paul is reminding us here what he says explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5 that we no longer regard people according to the flesh. Everything changes because we are a new creation. He's calling them to understand the dignity of these bond servants and treat them accordingly. And then he gives a negative command and stop threatening. Stop threatening. This is very similar to the exhortation of fathers that JT led us through last week. Very similar to that exhortation. Um, it is a call once again to lead the heart not just out of action, not a desire to see a desired obedience, but to lead the heart, to shepherd the heart in a sense. John Stott says threats are weapons which the powerful wield over the powerless. And a relationship based on threats is not a human relationship at all. Now, I said that I wasn't going to make application to our present day yet, but can I say time out for just a second? Maybe some other parents will join me in this. That caught me as a father. That statement right there. Am I leading the heart? So even from JT's beautiful message last week to this week, I'm still mindful of that. Paul was communicating to that. That you no longer regard according to the flesh. You're not just trying to get bond servants to obey. You are dealing with people who are created in the image of God. And there's mutual submission here. And one of the ways that you mutually submit is you acknowledge and recognize the inherent value in each other based on the fact that they are created in the image of God. Once again, we see that Paul grounds his commands to the masters in um, a reality that they should know. Look at verse 9. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours. This is the equality that Paul states. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is a reminder of a greater authority that the masters needed to be mindful of in their interactions with bondservants. It is a reminder of an equality before God as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It is a reminder of ultimate accountability before their heavenly master, that there is no partiality. And this is grounded in the scriptures, even as far back in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 19 says, now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes that we will be held accountable. That is the fear and trembling with which the masters were to treat their bondservants. So what's going on here? Well, here's a summary. Five things. Number one, the gospel changes everything. And we see that here. If we are willing to sit here and just hear from the original author to his original audience, if we're able to sit here long enough before trying to make application into our own day, we are dazzled by the radical power of the gospel. And the gospel changes everything, both for the slave and the master. Number two, the gospel ultimately shapes the understanding of every believer of their specific roles, as well as the way those roles should be carried out. God has not left any of us to determine how to carry out what God has given our hands to do. That we understand everything that we do through the gospel. God intends for us to see every work as gospel work. Everything we do is gospel work because we are gospel people. Okay? Number three, every believer must understand his or her identity as slave of Christ. Here's the deal. That rubs up against our Americanism. That rubs up against our idea of self-autonomy. That rubs up against our uh, just hardcore uh, uh, independence that we want. Folks, if we were purchased by Christ, we are his. And we are slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ. In fact, I forgot to put it in my notes, and I'm going to do something that I probably shouldn't do. I'm going to look it up right now. Something I saw. I know. Roll your eyes at me. That's okay. Something that Elizabeth Elliott once wrote. I can't believe I didn't put this in my notes, but it's right here. This is what she says. She says, stop bothering about what you want. Find out what your master wants. That's straight up, isn't it? Stop bothering about what you want. Find out what your master wants. Once. What a powerful statement. We need to understand at the very foundation of our identity in Christ is that we are slaves to Christ. We have been bought with a price. Our bodies are not our own. We are his. But he's a good master. The good master. Number four, the gospel determines our posture towards one another within the church, despite our differences in status in the world. We do not carry differences in the world into the church. We are brothers and sisters here. okay? and we're all part of the same body and we have different functions like our different body parts have different functions. But we are all equal before the cross. We are all brothers and sisters and we are all slaves together to him as our heavenly master. Okay. Number five, the gospel lifts our eyes up and out of our present circumstances and onto the eternal reality of the living hope we have in Christ, no matter what our situation is. You see, here's the truth. I believe that Paul is doing something much deeper than just relaying certain principles for this particular relationship within the home to follow. And if we just pull the principles out, we are going to miss the beauty of the gospel here. He is relaying to this particular group 
within the church, the culture regards as slave, that they have a new eternal standing in Christ that permeates every aspect of whatever temporary status they have before the world. Wow. You see the beauty in that? And by doing so, listen, by doing so, he was literally flipping this cultural institution upside down. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. He was doing it from the inside out. From the inside out through the radical power of the gospel of Christ that is first at work in those he redeems. See, here's the truth, brothers and sisters. One of the reasons why people approach this passage and say, why is not Paul speaking out? Why isn't he calling for revolution? Why isn't he overthrowing? Why isn't he? It's because we miss the true power of the gospel. And if I can just step out for just a second and say something we need to hear, I believe that I need to hear. Is that too often in our culture, we're willing to marry ourselves with different powers than the gospel to bring about cultural change that we believe is for the gospel. And here's the truth. When we do that, we inevitably abandon the way of Christ, which brings the change that we desire to see. We need to be very careful that we don't get that backwards. Once again, scholars tell us that not too long into the future, slaves were emancipated. And it didn't come through revolution. It came by looking to see what Paul had to say to these people in the church. And I also believe that it came through the lives of these slaves and masters who lived out the gospel. The gospel is first at work within believers. Have we given ourselves to that radical work? Brothers and sisters, we can't get that backwards. Again, we certainly can apply the principles found in this passage to the roles we have today in our work. We can do that. It's okay to do that. But we must not miss the foundational gospel implications revealed by Paul. In fact, let me let Brian Chapel do that for us. This is what he says. He says, if slaves and masters... We're obligated to demonstrate Christ to each other in a context of great, of such great inequity. Then how much more should we be willing to represent him in our work context today? If our employer is unfair, that no more excuses us from acting with integrity than a slave was excused from Christ's likeness in a society of unfairness. If an employee is difficult, that gives a boss who represents Jesus no more option of retribution or arbitrariness than a master. Even where difficult economic or employment decisions must be made, all who represent Christ to one another must act with his truthfulness, integrity and charity. It applies to us. It applies to us where we are. It does. And we need to hear that today. But listen, we don't need this passage to help us with that. The entire New Testament shapes the character of the believer that we carry into that context. We don't need this passage to tell us that it just echoes other things that we see. But here's the truth, and this is what I want us to see. I know individuals, and I'm sure that you do too. I know individuals who are employers and those who are employees who emulate this passage very well and who are outside of Christ. The power that makes a difference is the radical power found in the foundation of the gospel. Not an ability to follow certain principles. 
I was thinking about how I could illustrate this, and I thought back to my good friend, Jolty. Most of you know Jolt. Some of you do not. He's our friend who lives in Hungary. He uh, got connected with Westwood and came, became a member while he was here when he was doing his master's level work at Southeastern. Uh, went back and pastored for a while in Hungary and then came back over here to do his Ph.D. And he finished his Ph.D. at Southeastern. And I remember during that time we met often. We were, were good friends. We were talking quite a bit. And he was just telling me I, I'm having trouble finding work and I need to support my family while I'm here. People are being very gracious, but I need to work. And I remember the day that I found out that he got a job at a local fast food place. And I winced at that. Gosh. The dude's over here doing his Ph.D. He's brilliant. Smart guy. He goes over on that campus. He is somebody. He's having conversations with with professors. He's studying with the brightest people on that campus. He's working towards getting his terminal degree and he's working at a fast food joint. And I remember how humbled I was when I had a couple of conversations with people in our community not long after that. That told me of the exuberant joy that they saw in Jolte as he went about his work. And I remember Jolte sharing with me some difficulties he had there. He, he really struggled with working around some of the stuff that was there and just struggling. You know, he himself felt, you know, I mean, everybody's going to feel that. You know, he's terribly overqualified to be working in this job, wanting to do something else. It wasn't long before the other workers there saw that Jolte was always willing to do tasks. So they were dumping them on him and he was having to do a bunch of other people's stuff. And he was the last one there. But he did it all in a spirit that reflected Christ. He not only put these principles into play. He was a window through which the people that he worked with could see the reality of the redemption that we can have in Christ. It was the gospel at work. He never complained. He never had a sour face. Even when things were dumped on him, he was happy to serve others around him. What a beautiful example. This is who we should be in the world. No matter the situation. See, it's not the principles themselves that offer the distinction, but the presence of Christ and the power of the gospel. The gospel is radical. Thought I'd have a little bit of the gospel is radical. The gospel is powerful. So let me ask you. Has that power gripped your heart today? The first way that the gospel is radical and powerful is in the way that it brings dead people to life. That's a work of the spirit that he does within us. Do you know that power? Have you been brought from death to life? You see, Jesus came to do everything necessary to satisfy the God as a substitute for us, satisfy the father as a substitute for us. So that by faith in him, his standing of righteousness could become our standing. Have you placed your faith in Christ? If you haven't today. Perhaps today is the day that God intends you to know that power from the beginning. Is your trust placed in the radical power of the gospel today? This is a question we need to hear, brothers and sisters, because we're giving ourselves over to all kinds of other power. Do you trust in the gospel today? And do you trust in the gospel first at work in your heart? Do I trust in that today? That's a question that we need to grasp with grapple with are you experiencing the gospel's effects in your life is your living an outflow of your firm conviction of the reality of the gospel at work through your full submission to christ as your master do you understand 
your identity as a slave of Christ? Do you not only know that, is it your conviction that you carry into every situation? Understanding that that is who you are so that your life is yielded to that reality. Is the way you view people more in line with cultural influence or gospel influence? Finally, does your work and the way you understand your own role in that work proclaim the eternal reality of Christ and his kingdom? Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is good, good for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to work through this difficult passage together. And it is difficult, Lord. Even after this this morning, I still have questions. Still wondering about how we are to take this and how we are to understand it and apply it. But Lord, thank you for your goodness in helping us this morning to, I believe, catch a glimpse of mostly the, the power, the radical power of this gospel that was at work in Paul's culture of his day. And that, Lord, is still alive and well in ours today. So, God, I pray this morning for anyone in here who may uh, not know Christ as Lord. Father, I pray that you would do that work through the radical power of the gospel to bring them from death to life today. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, God, and help us to see the radical power of the gospel at work in us, God, that manifests itself in ways that we're not used to seeing power in our own culture Lord, but instead we see its power first and foremost in the way that it's working in my heart to sanctify me, to conform me to the image of Christ. So that through my life, your kingdom can come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would we yield ourselves to that work this morning? Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we have now heard your word. We've heard from you, God. We've studied it together. Father, I pray that you'd help us to respond in ways that you're calling us to. And we thank you for your gracious invitation that's always there to do just that, to fix our eyes onto you, Lord, and to draw close to you. And your word tells us that you will draw close to us. So, Father, I pray that that would be our response today. Help us to celebrate, even in the way we sing now, of the reality of this great gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>